Words that we would say over and over again were, drop the ladder. Drop the ladder. We would send those messages up to those whirling, chopping, pulsating blades that were above us. Drop the ladder. Save us. We're right here. Can you see us? We're ready. Take us with you. And yet for all of our effort, despite all of our passionate pleas, there was no response, no acknowledgement, not even the slightest deviation, of course, that, that would let us know that they're even aware of our existence, like a castaway just falling to their knees on the sand as that, that ship out there in the distance just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. We, we felt that anguish. We knew the there, there would be no soon relief to our, our lonesome suffering. Now, when, you, uh, when you're invited to go on a hike with your dad, you don't say no. And when you make it there to the trailhead, you, you, you don't walk. You run. This is an exciting thing. A hike with dad meant an adventure. It meant freedom. It meant the chance of discovering maybe something new here. And as we got going, the fragrance of the, of the wildflowers still dripping with dew. Oh, the cool breeze that's, that's sliding through your hair and underneath your t-shirt as you navigate those twists and turns and narrow passages and then carelessly hop from stone to stone to stone so that you don't get your Nikes wet. Oh, it's exhilarating. But as the terrain rises and the, the sun begins to scorch, well, the pace slows <laughs> and the beads of sweat start to form. And it becomes harder and harder to command your legs to put one foot in front of the other. <laughs> All I can think of is getting out. How do I get out of this? We're all familiar with the, the, the poor wretch that's just trudging through the desert. And given enough heat, there's that, that inevitable moment where fantasy and reality come and meet up with one another. And, the, and visions of palm trees standing guard over crystal clear pools. Those start dancing out in front of you, just out of reach to a dehydrated 10-year-old climbing steadily in the foothills of the San Bernardino National Forest. The distant passing of a helicopter was that, uh, that unattainable oasis, always out of reach. Drop the ladder, we would say, and we were half-joking, but imagining ourselves as if we were soldiers behind enemy lines, just waiting to be picked up and taken back to where we came from. Drop the ladder. You know what I'm talking about, right? You're familiar with that. You don't have to live very long to know that this journey through life that was once filled with hope and wonder, it, it comes prepackaged, doesn't it? Prepackaged with this inevitable, uninvited, unwelcome, often unexpected bouts of suffering. Life is hard. <laughs> It's hard. It's disappointing. It can be agonizing. One thing after another after another. Are you kidding me? The dishwasher broke? 
straw that broke the camel's back. Maybe it's a layoff. Maybe it's a, a cradle that lies empty for a child that didn't make it. Maybe it's another bill, another variant, another mandate, another order. Maybe it's a, another gray hair. <laughs> Maybe it's a, an ache or a pain that, that you don't have any hope that it's going to go away. Or there's just going to be another one and another one and another, and we're just adding to the list here. Maybe it's another disappointment of a, from a person that you thought was a friend. Or it's a, another sunrise awakening in you the, that awareness of, the, of a festering wound or a loved one that's gone or a problem that just won't go away. Or another day leading to that question why are we doing this? Do I really want to put another foot in front of the other? And like a 10-year-old stares up at the sky saying, drop the ladder, you hear a whispering voice inside saying, make it stop. How do I get out of this? How do you persevere through a life of suffering? How do you persevere? Well, human ingenuity has come up with several different ways. There's the macho approach. The macho approach, you, you suck it up, you shake it off, sheer brute force, sheer will, we're going to get through this macho approach. There's the defeatist approach, it's a life of doom and gloom. <laughs> a life of doom and gloom, you whine, you mope, you shut the shades, you cut others off. You write sad songs. Maybe you find a few other people, take comfort in the company of others who have actually seen the light and realize, like you, that it's all dark. <laughs> There's the, uh, the escapist approach. Yeah, you know, life's hard. Life's hard, but you know what? There are some things that are pretty exciting. Some things that, wow, I take pleasure in those things, and so I'm going to find maximum pleasure. I'm going to maximize my life experience with all of these things that bring me the most pleasure. I'm going to escape the suffering by distracting myself with all of these awesome things, be it food or, or entertainment or drugs or hobbies, exercise, amusement parks, uh, origami, Taxidermy. Hmm. There's the humanitarian approach. The humanitarian approach says, sure, life's hard, but you can make it better. You can be a difference maker. Don't be content with the way things are. Give of yourself here and make it a better place. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds a little better. Sounds noble, at least. There's the, the hopeful approach. The hopeful approach says, there's got to be something else or someone else out there that's, that I could put my trust in, right? That's going to make life better and, and lead us on a trajectory where things are not just getting worse and worse and worse and not everything's just falling apart. It's not the law of entropy anymore. We're actually making it better. And so we look to doctors for our prescription miracle drugs or we buy into those as seen on TV things or we start putting our money here or trusting in this leader or that cause, devote ourselves maybe to some religious rituals that are actually going to cause the forces of good to somehow shine down on us. There are a lot of different options out there. This morning we begin our study in 1 Peter. We've titled it Persevere. Persevere. 
And we're going to walk through this letter of the Apostle Peter, and he wrote it by his own admission for the purpose of his readers being able to stand firm. He writes in in 5.12, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. To stand firm is to persevere. It's to to hold out, to hold up under, to outlast uh, and face whatever it is that you're, you're facing. And I feel like I'm doing that again and again and again. How about you? Let's get into it. We're, uh, we're only looking at the first two verses this morning, but those first two verses contain a fundamental truth that is at the very core of what Peter understands to be the secret to perseverance through suffering. And he writes this, verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. What do we got here? Well, we've got the greeting uh, to the people that are being written to. This is the dear so-and-so part of the letter. And in it we find the identity of the person who's writing, and we also find the identity of the people that he is writing to. And somewhere in there lies the underlying secret to perseverance. Who's writing this letter? What's well, Peter? Who's Peter? Second only to Jesus, Peter is the most prominent figure in the first four books of the New Testament. He's the first follower of Jesus, the one who seems to have been a leader of sorts to all of the rest of the disciples. And what we know about Peter tells us that he was not some heady, uh, ivory tower idealist who sits behind a desk and sips tea all day long, never had a callus on his hands, never did a day of work in his life, and yet has no qualms sitting back and telling everyone else out there, you know what, you guys suck it up. Yeah, life's hard, get over it. No, he's not that kind of guy. Peter, previously known to the world as Simon Bar-Jonah, which simply means Simon, the son of Jonah, he was a regular guy. A regular guy. He was a man of the people. He knew what it was like to put in a hard day's work. In fact, he knew what it was like to slave away all night long and have nothing to show for it. He knew what it was to feel the burn of fiery emotions bubbling up from within. He knew what it was to say the wrong thing, to speak out of turn, to make bad decisions, even lose his temper and lop off a guy's ear. You guys can relate, right? He knew what it was to be overcome with fear, find himself saying anything that he could to take the pressure off. He knew what it meant to be hated for his allegiance to the one that he followed. In fact, as soon as Jesus had left, the hostility felt by the Jewish religious leaders, that turned from being on Jesus to toward his followers, those who followed him. And as a man who followed Jesus, not only followed Jesus, but actually took seriously the call that Jesus had given him to 
walk away from his fishing boat, walk away from the nets, and start actually catching men. As that kind of a person, Peter actually went and did it. And he began catching men as he would preach the good news of the gospel. And that's when the burners kick on underneath him. He shouldn't have been surprised. Jesus told his disciples, this is exactly what's going to happen to you. Jesus said that in Mark 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And that's exactly what happened. In Acts 4 verse 1, it records this. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day. For it was already evening. Okay, skip to the next day. Peter and John, they receive a stern warning not to preach the name of Jesus ever again. That, of course, was an order that they could not follow because they had superseding orders from a higher authority. And when it was found out that they're still out there, they're still telling people about Jesus. Acts 5.17 says, The high priest rose up, all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. This time, we're going to get the message into you, if we, even if we have to beat it into you. And they were beaten. In Acts chapter 6, we see the tale of another preacher Another person who was out there preaching about Jesus, they arrested him. He stood trial, and they take him out to the streets, and they stone him to death. How's that for justice? And what a wake-up call that would have been to the other guys, like Peter. These aren't just empty threats anymore, are they? And so begins the first persecution of the church. Peter was no stranger to suffering. This letter that we're going to be looking at, this first letter of Peter's, probably written around the mid-60s AD. That would have been right about the time when things were really beginning to heat up for Christians. He writes in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised. The heat is turning up. The fiery trial is coming. It's not quite here yet, but things are going to get worse. And even though things were going to get worse, things were already hot as it was. Because we find out from the very beginning here, Peter is writing to people that have already been scattered all over the place. Because the tension is rising. In 1 Peter 1, 6, he writes, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by trials of various kinds. The real fire, it's not realized yet, but things are warming up. Have things warmed up for you? Are you beginning to feel like the world is just not as friendly as it used to be? The flowers on the trail, they're beginning to wilt and scorch. <laughs> The gravitational pull on your body seems to be increasing. The heat of the sun is just sapping your strength. You look out there at the steepening trail. You're starting to wonder, how much more of this can I take? How much longer can I go on? Who's Peter writing to? 
Peter's writing to those who've been scattered. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. It pretty much covers uh, modern-day Turkey. He's writing to people who are under pressure, under threat, and it's about to get worse. In 64 AD, probably right around the time that this letter was written, that's when the Roman Empire was taken over by Emperor Nero. Nero was known for his tyranny. He was known for his extravagance. He was quite a guy. He executed his mother. He executed his adopted brother. In 64 AD, a fire breaks out in Rome. Burned for days. Six days, seven nights, actually. Romans thought, I'll bet Nero did this. He did this. He has this He's just insatiable craving to build. He always wants to build more and more and more. He's clear in space. He built for himself a new palace, which took up somewhere between 100 and 300 acres. It's said that as the city burned, he's playing the harp. He's singing as it's burning to the ground. People of Rome were crushed. Their temples are being destroyed. Their idols are, 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 are falling to the ground. What happened to our gods? Our gods are letting us down. The people were homeless. They were helpless. They were hopeless, wanting to take the heat off of himself. Nero blamed the Christians for setting fires. Let's blame, blame the Christians. The people already don't like the Christians. They think these Christians are a little crazy. They don't worship the same gods that we do. And then they do this weird communion thing. They're eating the body and the blood of, of Christ. That's gross. Cannibals. Let's blame the Christians. And that's when the first large-scale government-endorsed persecution of Christianity began. Christians were arrested. They were dressed in animal skins and ripped apart by wild dogs. Thrown to the lions. Some were crucified. This is the one that, that disturbs me the most. Some were dipped in wax and put up on poles and set on fire as candles to light Nero's gardens by night. Can you imagine? What a terrifying time. If I ever live in those days... <laughs> I'd probably seriously be wondering whether or not I still want to be committed to Christ. <laughs> Drop the ladder. I want out. Get me out of here. What's it going to take? Peter didn't escape persecution either. Tradition has it that he was forced to watch as his wife was crucified. He's recorded as saying to his wife just before she died, Remember the Lord, persevering even then. When it came time for him to be crucified, he reportedly pled, he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was crucified. Hang me upside down. Now, I said that in these two verses contained a, a fundamental truth that's at the very core of what Peter understands to be the secret to perseverance through suffering. How do you persevere through a life of suffering? The answer lies in who you are. 
It lies in who you are. Who are the people Peter's writing to? We already know there are people that are scattered all over the place. Christians who are scattered all over the place had to left, have to leave their homes. What else does Peter say about them? Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He says they're elect. The Greek word, ekletos, just means chosen. And this is where some of us cringe and start to shift in our seats a little bit. This doctrine, the doctrine of election, it, it brings with it a whole lot of questions. It leads some of, us to, some of us to think, maybe God isn't fair. I don't see how he can be fair if he's choosing some and not choosing others. For some, it leads them to the conclusion, God must not really be loving, or at least not love everybody like the Bible says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Really? Maybe he just loved some people here. I think that's what it meant. How can he choose some and not choose others? For others, it causes them to think that, you know what? If God chooses, then nothing we do really matters. He's just calling the shots here. In fact, it seems like we're just in some type of a script and we're just playing our parts. And so what does it even matter? Others say, well, if God chooses who are going to be saved and those who are not, then there's no point in me going out and telling others about Jesus. Well, God's going to save who he wants, so who cares? To all that, let me just say this. You may not like the idea that God elects or God chooses whom he wishes to come to know Jesus. You can certainly point to places in the Bible where it indicates that people are called to place their trust in Jesus. It's a, it's a choice. Acts 16.31, believe, believe, it's a command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. No argument there. But we can't rightly say that we, we believe in all that the Bible says and teaches if we choose to ignore this part, this part that says that God elects. Because you see, as I look at Scripture and as I spent time looking at the Bible today, uh, this past week, again and again, and again, and again, and again, it's there. And you're like, really? Wait, there's another verse over here? There's another verse over here? I can't ignore this. What do I do with this? We see it here in this verse, 1 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. We see it again in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you are a chosen race, speaking of Christians. Then you go all the way back into Deuteronomy in chapter 7.6, speaking of the children of Israel, God's people. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. That same sentiment is in Deuteronomy 14.2. Then it's in Psalm 105.43. So he brought... His people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing. Then you go to Psalm 135, verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. And then you come to Christians in Ephesians uh, 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, that is, uh, chosen beforehand, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then Jesus talks about this again and again and again. Matthew 24, Luke 18, 7, John 5, 21, 6, 35 to 44, 10, 16, and 17. In fact, look, looking at John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe me. He's speaking to some people who really don't accept him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see how, uh, on the one hand, we come to Jesus? We come to Jesus. But that we come only because it's God who has decided that we will come. In fact, our coming is the result of him giving us to Jesus. <sighs> Problematic. From our limited perspective, we come to recognize that we are a sinful people. We've been separated from God. And so we hear the new good news of Jesus Christ, and then we either choose to believe or we choose not to believe. We choose to ignore that same as not believing. But here in John 6, Jesus pulls back the curtain and lets us see that any believing that we choose to do is actually the result of God's will. In actuality, any choosing that we end up doing is just a response to something miraculous God does. And I would argue that what God does, he does inside of us and makes us aware of our sin, opens our eyes to see Jesus as our one and only hope, and awakens our dead hearts and gives us faith so that we can believe. Peter writes that his reader's election, they're being chosen by God. He writes that it was according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Now, some people look at that word foreknowledge and they go, ha, ah, there you see, there you see. Now, when it says that God chooses, that just means that he saw out there into the tunnels of the future and he saw who would believe and who would not believe and he chooses based on that. I think that would be a mistake to think that way. Jesus made it very clear in John 5, 16 that God does the choosing. He said this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And when you think about it, how could any of us choose God if we take other pieces of scripture and we start to really think about them. And think of Romans 3.11, for instance. Romans 3.11 quotes Romans 14.1-3 and 53.1-3. Uh, uh, it quotes, uh, did I say Romans? I meant Psalms. And it says this, there is none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. In Ephesians 2 we're told that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people can't make themselves alive again. They're dead. They're done. 
And in the same way, spiritually dead people, they can't fix their relationship with God. They can't make themselves alive again, no matter how much determination they have. They're, they're dead. Jesus said in 521, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So that leads me to believe that when Peter says that their election is according to the foreknowledge of God, he's just saying that this is something that God has predetermined. It wasn't a last-minute decision. It, it wasn't that he found himself in a good mood and then decided, yeah, I think I'll save these guys. No. Part of his grand plan from the very beginning, like Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. He foreknew. Then it says he elected us in, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And sanctification, we talked about this just recently, very big fancy word, and it just means set apart. In second and First Peter uh, two nine, Peter's going to tell us, "You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Those whom God has chosen, He called out of darkness and brought into His marvelous light." That's what we're talking about here when we're talking about the sanctification of the Spirit. When you respond to God's call on your life, you are set apart. God does, God's Spirit does this miraculous thing inside of you in setting you apart from your old life that was away from God and now brings you into relationship with God. He brings you out of darkness into the light. He takes you from wandering around there and opens your eyes to the truth and leads you straight to God. And so there being chosen the people that Peter's writing to, their being chosen was according to the foreknowledge of God. And it became real to them when God's Spirit did this sanctifying, separating work. Then he says, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. And this would have taken Peter's readers all the way back to Exodus chapter 24. Moses is giving the people God's law. And in response, they said, we believe it, we'll do it, we'll follow it, we'll obey it. And that's when he seals the deal, seals this covenant between them and God by taking blood and sprinkling it on them. Very kind of morbid kind of scene. This is this kind of disturbing, kind of like horror film kind of stuff. And yet, this is very, very important. Because God seals contracts and covenants in blood. Here's, here's the passage. Listen to it. Then he, that is Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God seals contracts and covenants in blood. In the same way, when God's Spirit does His work inside of us, it opens our eyes to see our need for Jesus, we obediently respond by trusting in Him and, and then saying, 
Here's my life. Jesus, I was, I was my Lord and master, and you know what? Now you're my Lord and master. I will obey you. And all of that is sealed, not with the blood of some animal, but with nothing less precious than the, 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 nothing less than the, his own precious blood, the blood of Jesus. It was shed for you and me. It's his blood that makes this contract unbreakable. It's his blood that takes me out of darkness, brings me into the light, and now seals me so that now any, any mistake, any wrong that I do now is covered by that contract. Cannot be broken. I'm his. He's mine. His life is now mine. Blood covers over my sins. It stamps the record of my debt paid in full. So why does any of this matter? And what does this have to do with perseverance here? The fundamental truth, making it possible for these scattered, suffering people to persevere. What does that have to do with election? Their election. This idea that they have been chosen is everything. We've all experienced um, those moments when we've, we've thrown down our credit cards or we've taken out our wad and we've thrown down the bills and, we, and we've got something we really wanted and then we finally get it and we're just like, what did I just do? Was this the right choice? Imagine going through this intense time of suffering, a time of suffering like these people were about to go through. Imagine how easy it would have been for them to say, gosh, you know what? I'm not sure I made the right decision here. <laughs> Maybe following Jesus was not such a good idea after all. I thought it was going to be all roses and uh, you know, wildflowers and you know, hopping over streams and all this. This is getting hard. This is really tough. And maybe they're thinking, you know what, maybe I, I never really had faith to begin with, or maybe I didn't have enough faith because I thought if I had enough faith, things would go pretty easy for me, but they're getting really, really hard. Or maybe the reason I'm suffering is because the prayer I prayed really did not work. Maybe I don't have what it takes to be a true follower of Jesus. Have you been there? I've been there. In fact, at junior high, I was plagued, plagued with this kind of thinking. Maybe, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I'm not going to heaven. You know, if I died tonight, I know where I want to go. Maybe God didn't hear me. Maybe I'm not good enough for him to love me. And Peter wants to drive those doubts from the minds of those who have trusted in Jesus. He wants you to know that as the sun begins to hang high and the trail gets tough, you start looking at the sky and you're looking for that way of escape here. He wants you to know that your identity as God's people is not an accident. No way. Your identity in Christ was not something that happened by chance. It was by choice. But not yours. Not merely yours. By God's. 
If your trust is in Jesus, that's because God purposed from before the foundation of the world. This is Ephesians 1. Before cells fused together, before the blood started pumping through that tiny little body, before you began to make mistakes and do things and say things and think things that should never be said, done, or thought, he purposed to make you his own. Set you apart out of darkness, called you to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, sealed your eternal destiny with none other than the precious blood of Jesus. Do you see what enormous difference that makes. And we all know how this works. We see it in the books we read. We see it in the, the, the films that we watch on our, on our screens. The hero, he faces tremendous, or she faces tremendous pressure. And anyone else would have surely given up long before. But this person knows that they aren't there by chance. This is their destiny. This is the reason for their whole life. They aren't here by accident. They've been chosen. They have a calling. And that's why, as excruciating as it may be, they command their legs, put one foot in front of the other. How do you persevere through a life of suffering? Well, if you don't know that you have been called out of darkness and into the light, into God's family, if you don't know that you have been given a hope and a future. If you don't know that this world is not your home, it's not where you belong, if you don't know that all that plagues you on the inside, you ever start looking inside? That's a dark place. <laughs> all that plagues you on the inside is being transformed by the Holy Spirit who has made his dwelling within you and that the wrongs you have, been, have done, man, some of us carry around a lot of guilt, the wrongs that Christians have done have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that contract has sealed the deal, and there is now nothing that will bring condemnation because Jesus took the condemnation for you, and there is nothing that will separate you from the love of God because we are in Jesus Christ our Lord. If you don't have that, then I don't know how you do persevere. I don't, I really a mystery to me. I sit there at the bedside of people who pass away, and I think, how, do, how does anyone face this if they don't have the hope of Jesus Christ? How do their loved ones figure this out and walk through their grief without the hope of Jesus Christ? How do you persevere through a life that is just, it's filled with suffering? Yeah, there are tons of joys. There's wildflowers out there, and they're beautiful. There's a lot of suffering that punctuates again and again and again. How do you persevere? First and foremost, you look to your calling. Christians persevere through suffering by remembering they have been chosen by God. Chosen by God not an accident. As we begin to walk through 1 uh, Peter, it's important that we recognize something right from the start. And that is that this letter is not written to everyone. 
if you have not answered the call of God, if you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, then you are on the outside looking in. Because you don't have the hope that he's speaking about. You don't have the assurance that you've been brought out of darkness and into the light. You don't know that your sins have been forgiven and that you're no longer an enemy of God, but now friends with God. You don't have the hope that of beyond here and now. You, you shouldn't have any delusions that you have a place reserved with your name on it in eternity. If you've never, not yet pl- placed your trust in Jesus, now's the time to answer that call. <laughs> to respond. Yes, there's work that's done behind the curtain, but you know, that really doesn't concern us. That's God's doing. All we know is that here and now, there is a call put before you and me. How do I respond to this? Believe it, embrace it, reject it outright, or just ignore it, which is the same thing as rejecting it. Have you come to that, plight, that point where you have looked at yourself and you said, you know what, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ is that Savior, the perfect Savior, who stood in my place, died the death that I should have died. He rose again three days later, proving that he actually was who he said he was and accomplished what he came to accomplish. Have you come to that point where you say, that's where my trust is. You know, people look at Christianity, they'll say, yeah, this is just a religion just like all the others. It's really not. It's really not. Everything else is us trying to figure out some way to get God's approval. It's, it's that last thing we talked about, the hopeful approach. Somehow I'm going to go through some ritual. Some people actually think that I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to show up and be among these people, and yeah, God will, you know, it'll, I'll just get lumped in with the crowd. It's like the kids sneaking into the movie theater. <laughs> Those are my parents. It doesn't work that way. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, would you do that this morning? There's no magic spell, no magic prayer or anything like that. It's just simply acknowledging who you are, who Jesus is, what he's done, and saying, that's it. That's it. That's what faith looks like. Lord, I need you. I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Jesus Christ took my place. With the blood that he shed, seal the deal for me. Would it be the ink that stamps my record paid in full? And if you're not a believer, or if you are a believer, and you find yourself walking through life, and you're feeling like the wear and tear of the trail, it's, it's, <laughs> it's wearing and tearing on you. Remember your calling. You're not an accident. You've been purposed from before the foundation of the world to be one of God's people, even before you were born. So let your heart be filled with hope and peace 
and joy that comes from knowing that your maker has set you apart to be his own. And that this journey that you are now on, it's going somewhere. It leads to your forever home. Let's persevere together, knowing who we are in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the hope that you give us, the assurance that you give us, that this is not about going to confession over and over and over again and hoping that we, have, we are all up to date on confessing all the things that we need to confess so that we, when we're, we're called to task, Lord, we've, we've, we've paid the bill. No, it's not about that. It's about Jesus, the forgiveness that we have in him, the once and for all sacrifice that was made. Lord, I pray that you would lead us to continually reflect on that, especially when times get tough and we feel like throwing in the towel. Would we remember who we are because of Christ and may that make all the difference. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for coming Thank you for continuing on with us as your Holy Spirit continues to minister to us. Thank you that you are coming back, just like we heard last week. We love you. We thank you. Pray that this week, Lord, our lives may be all about you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.